I'm turning this evening to the book of Ezra, chapter 5 and verse 1. Ezra, chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. And the title this evening is Priorities for Christ's People. Now, we've read before, and I shall do so just by way of introduction, read again the opening verses of the book of the prophet Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, The people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, it, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm, and he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So there's the great call of the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to the people to continue building the house of God. And we were looking at some of this just two, two weeks ago. They have been some 15, 16 years with complete discontinuation of the building of the temple. And uh, you may remember that I was seeking to point out that in chapter 4 and verse 6 all the way to verse 23, but not including verse 24, from verses 6 to 23, there was a kind of flash forward to two other reigns in those verses where letters were written by the Samaritans, the enemies of the Jews, to the Persian authorities to try to bring about a ceasing of activity in Jerusalem and a stopping of the building of the temple. And if you don't re remember that, then this uh, uh, book of Ezra becomes very confusing to you. So uh, in verse 6, you go right forward to the reign of another king, and then yet another one as the verses go on, and you return, verse 5 really continues in verse 24. So we'll read Ezra 4, verse uh, 5, and how the uh, Samaritans troubled them in building and hired counsellors against them, bribed even Jewish leaders to frustrate their purpose, 
the building of the temple, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then, verse 24, then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. Back in verse 5, it ceased. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At least 15 years, probably 16 years, no building. And now the narrative continues. Chapter 5, then, in the reign of Darius, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, there the ministers of God, but they were more than present-day ministers, they were inspired prophets. But uh, we would say today, ministers of God stirred up the people, chastised them, and urged them to resume the building, which they did. And you read in verse 2 of chapter 5, then rose up Zerubbabel, and so on. But I'd like to look at, in verse 1 there, uh, they were appealed to in the name of the God of Israel, even unto the Jews, them, in the name of the God of Israel. And that's an interesting starting point to us. What was the basis of the exhortation of Haggai and uh, his fellow prophet Zechariah in appealing to the people? Well, it was, in simple terms, that they were named in connection with God. They bore the name that God had bestowed upon them. The God of Israel. Israel, their great forebear, and meaning those or one who prevails with God. So it was all done in the name of the God of those who prevail with God. The appeal was made on the basis, you are God's people. What right had the two ministers to urge them to leave off building their houses and to make that daily commute from wherever their small holdings were and from the provinces and that weekly commute to the teams that were appointed, deputed to Jerusalem for that set period of labour. By what right did they appeal to them to uh, the hazards of that journey and the constant ambushes by the Samaritans and the, const the plundering of their lands and estates while they were away in Jerusalem? What right did those ministers have to urge the people to give up so much and to come back to the building of the temple? And it's right there, in the name of the God of Israel. You have to have an authority. In whose name were those prophets working? And on what basis? That the people were God's people. Now we know that many of them lacked faith. But they were, in those days, the typical church of God. God had especially blessed them. He'd redeemed them. He'd transformed them. He'd led them into their own land. He'd done great things for them. He'd poured out upon them demonstrations of his mighty power. He'd given them uh, a law 
and uh, a culture and a society. He'd done everything for them. So it was on the basis that they are especially blessed and loved by God in that time that they're appealed to. And it's the same with us. One of the tasks of preachers, of pastors, is to appeal to the people. Of course, to woo the people, to seek to win them, to help them, to, to encourage them forward in the study of the scriptures and the understanding of God's will and God's commands, but also to urge and to challenge. But on what basis? What right does a preacher have to appeal to God's people, to rouse us up to action, to service, to work? Well, because you're his, if you're saved, because he's redeemed you. Christ has come and suffered and died for you. By his spirit, he's changed your entire life and purged your heart and given you new understanding. He's been your guide and your companion and your helper. He's done everything for him. Of course, you owe him your life. He's the one who has undertaken to lead you, no matter what, all the way to glory and to give you eternal heavenly bliss. And so that's the basis of the appeal, because of everything that has been done, and for the love that he has for you, and the care he's shown to you, and that's all there. They appealed in the name of the God of Israel. They were God's people. God was their God, and that was the basis. And when you read uh, Haggai and Zechariah, they're doing it constantly. They're appealing to the privileged standing of the people. When you come down to verse 2, and there is the reaction. The leaders, the governor, the Jewish governor of the province, and the high priest lead the way, and the prophets are mentioned in verse 2, helping them. That's uh, uh, not just the uh, prophets that are mentioned, but also others that were there. But immediately, and this concerns us tonight, in verse 3, opposition at the same time came to them Tatnai, that's a Persian name, governor, the Persian civil servant, supremo in the region, on this side the river, and his colleagues, and they demanded, who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? Everything required an authority. Now, Satan's methods don't change. And this book of the prophet Ezra has a sequence, a series of identical wiles of Satan. The main effort in Ezra, recorded in this book, are the repeated efforts to persuade the Persian emperor and authorities to quash the building project. And they use all their arts and powers to bring this about. They use other methods too, constant harassment and interference and regional bullying and incursions and attacks. But the big efforts that are recorded in this book are the series of appeals to the emperor uh, in, in, of the Medo-Persian Empire. 
and it's introduced here. Verse 3, at the same time came to them Tatnai and began to uh, complain and to order them to stop. Always Satan will try, and early in any work, to go to the seat of authority. You see it in in history, time after time. There's uh, the Roman Catholic Church. In the very beginning, in the first centuries of the church, the churches bore the message of the word, and they bore it faithfully. But very quickly, uh, corruption set in. As early as the first century, there were some areas of the churches being corrupted. And the second century, and by the fifth and the sixth centuries, what we would call historically the Roman Catholic Church was well and truly on the rocks as far as truth was concerned and away from biblical doctrine. And so it went on for a very long time. And Satan had seen, obviously, that uh, the source of proclamation of the word was in those early times the churches. And as soon as the church, after Constantine, became organized and centralized, Satan went for the seat of authority. Corrupt that. Corrupt this organized church at the top. Bring in unconverted people. Bringing people whose views are completely sabotaged by satanic doctrines of demons. And you'll wreck everything. And that's always been his method. Then you have the Reformation. And what did the Reformation do? Well, it went back to the Word of God. There was organization. Luther and his fellows organized his church. The French organized their Reformed church. Yes, there were churches, but there was... Above all that, a great drive to go back to the word. And the authority of the word prevailed. And all over Europe, there were gatherings of converted people, Christians, some in organized regional churches, some quite, many quite independent, and they all shared this in common in the early days, uh, subsequent to the Reformation, the word of God is the only authority. Well, before you know it, the devil has gone to that source of authority. And the big movement begins, even as early as the uh, 15th century, to pollute the word of God and to downgrade the word of God and to cast doubt on the word of God. It reached its climax in the 19th century with the movement for higher criticism that swept through Christendom and so on. Go for the authority is the satanic method. Go for the seat of information. Cast doubt on it. Discredit it. Pollute it. Pervert it. Bring it down. It's the same. This is the message of the book of Ezra. We've got to stop these people. We'll do things locally. We'll attack them. We'll rob them. We'll discourage them. We'll hire their own counsellors to plot against them and bribe them. We'll do all these things, but the main thing we'll do is go to the authority and get them stopped. And it happens once, twice, three times, and even to a degree a fourth time. And that's the lesson. It's, it's, there is running through it a cable, an implicit, implicit exposing of Satan 
and his methods. But verse 3, they challenge. And they start by demanding the names of the authorities, the people organising this building. You read in verse 5, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius, till they'd got their letters to the emperor. None of the local threats would work. The prophets had spoken and the people were urged forward to build. Now, I'd like to spend a few moments just thinking of the Lord's strategy in this particular instance. Why rebuild the temple first? 42,000 plus people in the first movement of Jews from the Babylonian Empire back to their homeland and the first task they're given is the reconstruction of the temple. Now you can suggest a number of alternatives. What about the reconstruction of the wall of the city? There was insecurity, constant attacks and troubles. Wouldn't that come first? Why the building of the temple? Why not what the people wanted to do? Build their homesteads, build up their small holdings and their farms and their food producing installations. Why not let them do that first? Why the temple? God's command and his provision and his protection is for the construction of the temple. Because message is supreme. The message is everything. God's word. God's purpose must be declared. God's standards must be proclaimed. And it all begins with the temple. That's the great symbol of God's provision, of mercy, of what he will do. That's the great symbol which teaches God's absolute unapproachability and holiness, except by the means that God provides. That's the symbol of God's mercy and available pardon and forgiveness. This has got to come first. And it's, of course, the uh, source of this message going out worldwide. If they build their farmsteads and open their local synagogues and the sacrifices are not offered and the central message doesn't go out, well, then there may well be blessing in uh, Judah, but it won't be seen anywhere else. It won't go out into the world. Their capital is Jerusalem. That's the center for all international relations and trade and everything else. And that is where the uh, symbols and the focal point of the commands of God and his word must be established. So they had to begin there. And there's a principle running from that throughout time. Because in the New Testament, the order that prevails is that of local churches that are autonomous and uh, self-governing under Christ and taking their authority from the word of God. And yet... You also see in the New Testament the Apostle Paul 
and others working through large centres. So the apostle, for instance, will go to the big cities. He'll go to Corinth, he'll go to Ephesus. He's longing to get to Rome. That's his greatest ambition. He's unable to go there except by remarkable provision of God through his own arrest and transportation there. But all the big cities, he takes in all the towns en route, but the places where he settles for a time, the places he emphasizes are the cities. And from those places, the word of God goes forth. And you know, there was a term to describe this adopted in the 19th century by a number of people, and it was the apostolic metropolitan ministry. And that is why Spurgeon chose the term metropolitan for a church in the centre of London, because he believed that it was possible that from the centre of London, a local church would have a double privilege. It would be called to serve where it was, and it may even be called to have the privilege of winging the word further afield. So it became the Metropolitan Tabernacle. That was his scheme. Now the Tabernacle, if you don't mind my digressing into this, has always been a little bit like that in its history. Benjamin Keach, one of our first pastors, and you'll know the name, was very much a local church pastor. He was always in his pulpit. He was operating not only towards adults, but one of the founders of children's work and Sunday school publications, though they were not called that in those days. And that was part of his emphasis. And constantly he was involved in dealing with issues. And he was one of those particular Baptist meeting houses in those days to which people came to look, not for any authority. They wouldn't take authority over other churches, not for any authoritative direction. They would never have done that because they believed very much in the autonomy of the individual church. But for the proclamation of the word, for addressing things, for giving warnings and encouragements, and he was one of the principal movers in the 1689 Baptist Confession and a great many other initiatives at that time. And his successors were the same. William Ryder coming down to Dr. Gill. Now, Dr. John Gill is known today more uh, as a hyper-Calvinist. And in some respects, he was, in his theology a theoretical hyper-Calvinist, without doubt. But he was in a state of happy contradiction because he was also, in his own way, a very strong upholder of the universal tender of salvation. And I often say, and remind you, he was one of the chief promoters of George Whitfield in its first days and the Great Awakening. And when the first sermons of the Great Awakening in a foggy October morning in 1739 
were given by Whitfield on the Kennington Common at Gallows Corner. The main supporters who stood round the preaching place, which was where they used to hang the sheep stealers, were the congregation of Dr. Gill. And he would urge them out, and he would urge his members out round the London coffee houses to turn people out to the preaching. But by the Spirit of God, there was a mighty movement, and up to 40, even there has been recorded, 50,000 people would stand on the old original Kennington Common facing Gallows Corner, which is exactly where St. Mark's Church now stands, listening to Whitfield, and very instrumental in that was uh, uh, John Gill. So he was a little bit of a contradiction. But what isn't known about him today, particularly, is that almost every crisis that came along in the particular Baptist world, the Christian world of those days, at every point of confusion and every error, John Gill wrote a tract about it. And uh, to John Gill, a tract was 80 or 90 pages long. And uh, he would sift and analyse and address the issue. What I'm saying, even then, throughout his long 51-year ministry, he was constantly issuing these things that people would appreciate to help them sort out in their minds and to face the various attacks on the faith and the various difficulties that came along. Now, this congregation has a kind of a history in this. And... Dr. John Rippon, who succeeded him, minister for 63 years, was the same. Rippon only wrote two books. One was a hymn book, and that's very well known for being the first hymn book ever that actually classified the hymns. The Doctrine of God, the Doctrine of Man, the Doctrine of the Spirit, Christian Experience. Before Gill, before Rippon, Hymn books were just a muddle, unless they followed the Psalter. And the other book that he wrote was The Life of Gill, which shows his genius. I like to tell people this, but John Gill wrote a, an 80-page booklet or pamphlet on supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism, one of the great theological debates of the time. And the famous expression of a certain author of years ago that everything he wrote was a continent of mud could be applied to Dr. Gill's book. It's so intricately reasoned, it's very difficult to read, almost impossible to follow. And Rippon, in his life of Gill, believe it or not, summarises the whole thing and the entire debate clearly, lucidly, interestingly, in four pages. It's pure genius. Anyway, uh, beyond those two little books, nobody's heard of Dr. Rippon. And I'll tell you what, what he did do. He didn't write books. He wrote a newspaper. It was called The Baptist Freeman. And all nonconformists read it. And in that, he addressed all the great issues of the day and helped people and encouraged people. And he was one of the 
unappointed archbishops of Christendom in his advice and helpfulness. Then Spurgeon. Not just the downgrade, but five major issues arose in the course of Spurgeon's ministry, which the Lord enabled him to address scripturally and give a lead on. So in a way, even in our history, we've been a little like this. Nowadays, we follow in that tradition on a small scale. We do not have the giants that there were in the past. We do not have quite the hearing that there was in the past. But at the tabernacle, the way things have emerged and the way the Lord has enabled this congregation, and it is the whole congregation, things have emerged which we cannot normally talk about. Because if we did, we would be entirely misunderstood. And it's not good to talk about them. But sometimes it is wise that to, make, to help everybody to understand. First and foremost, we're a local church. We seek to win souls. We preach the everlasting gospel. We preach the word and the doctrines. We minister to adults and to children. And we do everything. We hope and trust and try to do everything that a New Testament local church ought to do. But then it does so happen because of our history and because of our location and because of our size in the context of church going in our country today because of our size, we've, we've been enabled to do things which reach much more widely than that. Through publishing in more recent years, through the internet and uh, through the seminary work and various other things, and through the ministering to a constant stream of international friends who are with us either for student days or postgraduate jobs or whatever it is or as immigrants of one kind or another and we have the privilege to receive them here but so many of them must go their way at the end of their time with us and the whole congregation by working together for the Lord inspires them and educates them and helps them to carry that back home. And the effect of this is remarkable. There are numerous countries of the world where live churches exist because people have gone from the tabernacle. And we've often forgotten them. You'll remember the people last year and the year before and the year before that who after three or four years went back to Africa or to the Far East or for different, to different countries of different kinds and strengths all over the world. And now uh, in different churches, some, the mainstay of those churches as the years go by, I remember how shocked my wife and I were 
And this is going way, way back into the mid-80s when we were in uh, the Far East and at a particular conference and we were told there's a group of people who are ex-Tabernacle want to meet with you after this service. In a, we'll show you the room. And we expected to meet three or four people and there was, to our amazement, a room full of about 35 people. This is one country, all ex-tabernacle people, carrying the torch, running the Sunday schools in their churches, running the visitation ministry, bringing the torch of working church wherever they are, two ministers among them, preaching the gospel on a regular basis. And then you hear from other countries of the world, people who go here and there, people who come back and visit and call you. It is just amazing how this builds up over the years. I have been told, and I cannot vouch for this, but I have been told by a, a preacher who goes around a good deal preaching conferences that in his estimation, if there is a a Baptist, a non-conformist, an independent church in the UK where there is a regular gospel preaching ministry. It has something to do with the tabernacle. People have been to schools of theology, to conferences, received things, messages. Now you can see we cannot talk like this as a general rule, but it's, it's good for you to appreciate this in your hearts because... Sometimes people say, and they mean well, you people at the tabernacle, you have a big crowd there, wouldn't it be better if some sort of an atom bomb went off in the middle of you, but not a destructive one, and, and, and you were all scattered to churches all around London? Wouldn't that be far better? All these churches that need helpers, all these churches that are struggling, wouldn't it be so much better if you just shut, shut your doors and spread round? Wouldn't that be a move forward? Well, it sounds interesting. And I, I have to say that if there's anyone in the tabernacle who is called of God and is sure of it, to go and attach to a local church. There will be nothing wrong in that. That can only do good. No question about that. So certainly not to, uh, decrying the legitimacy of helping other churches. But there is a tremendous ministry in the centre of London for a large group of people praying and stewarding and labouring together because the Lord has used this congregation. I'm not talking about this ministry. I'm talking about all of us. This congregation has used us mightily. That's why I'm saying all over the world and all over this land there are people who have carried the torch for which we stand. Issues have come along. Some of you will remember back in the 80s, 
the charismatic movement suddenly had tremendous acceleration. Started in the 60s in this country, but it really accelerated in the 80s. Broke all bounds. Not a voice was raised against it anywhere. In fact, good men, good ministers thought at first, we will have to accept this and work with this. Ours were the first publications that rang a warning. And people everywhere paid heed. Many people changed their tap, thought it through. Issue after issue has come up. And some things that didn't come up as issues. The working church principle. We didn't invent it. The working church principle used to be common among the Baptist churches. It was a leading principle. C.H. Spurgeon had a working church. 57 associations existed in this church during the course of his ministry for different good works, ragged schools, Sunday schools, Bible classes, various different things. All of them, an elder had to chair. That's how they were regulated. It was a working church. If they could, people put their hand to the plough. And we tried to address this principle and, and bring it back. And everywhere where it goes, it, it helps churches. Immensely, enormously. But what I really mean to say is this. If a person belongs to the tabernacle and prays for the ministers of the tabernacle and does their best in the Lord's service, not only do you reach children and adults yourself, but what we do together makes a tremendous impact on many other churches. And we keep that tradition alive. There is a place and a calling and a double instrumentality in a metropolitan ministry. That's why the apostles started in the large centres, in the centres of large occupation, with strong congregations from which the word went out. So... If you took that away, of course, who can tamper with what God brings about? But if you took that away, what would be the end product? If there wasn't a core of people doing only the things which a larger church can do and can afford to do and can underwrite and maintain, what would happen? Or what would not have happened and not have taken place? It could be that the privilege that falls to you is that you have twice as much instrumentality because you've got a double purpose, your own work and the things that we can do by virtue of praying and serving together. Well, I spent a long time on that, but it seems to me that it's something we can revisit going through this book of Ezra because this purpose, this metropolitan purpose is implicit throughout the book. Just a quick glance as we go through chapter 5. 
the letter, verse 7, that the Persian authorities, the Samaritans, principally, sent to Darius. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but it fairly represents the Jews and their claims. And the reason why it represents their claims fairly, as they stated them, is because the Samaritans firmly believed that the claims were baseless, that the Jews had never had permission to rebuild their temple and their city. And they'd never been given any treasure uh, stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. And none of these things were true. And as soon as this letter arrived in the Persian headquarters, they'd be infuriated that all these things were suggested and they'd ban the ongoing work. But if you read the letter, it's most interesting, it's loaded with uh, uh, efforts to persuade the authorities against the Jews. Verse 8, which is builded with great stones. Why do they mention that? Hint, hint, this isn't a temple, this is a fortress. This is part of the grand fortification that they're going to be constructing to return to their rebellion against the empire. What's implicit in this letter, all these suggestions and ideas, and the language uh, is so suggestive all the way through. And then in verse 11, uh, the letter says, well, they admit it, they tell us. This was built by a great king of Israel, He built it and set it up years ago. See what they're trying to put across? These people are intensely nationalistic. They surely couldn't have been given permission to rebuild their city and their temple when they're talking about their great king and his accomplishments. This is dangerous. They're nationalists. And then they're probably bitter because they say, they were delivered into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. They want their liberty and their independence again. All these, uh, this Tatna is a brilliant civil servant and he knows how to load his letter with these ideas and suggestions to sway the authorities in the court of Persia. And so the letter is sent tongue-in-cheek in the full belief that it would be denied. But it wasn't. Chapter 6, Darius the king made a decree. Search was made in the house of the rules. And uh, even the place is named, Akmiza, the palace in the province of the Medes. A roll and therein was a record thus written. And there's a partial quotation from the decree of Cyrus. And then they find that Cyrus has even stated the dimensions of this temple. He had got personally deeply interested in it. Verse 4, three rows of great stones, a row of new timber, and all the rest of it. So they they didn't actually build it as large as that, but they had advanced permission to, like planning authorities might today, 
to build up to a certain height and a certain length and a certain breadth. The more you see of this original Cyrus edict in bits and pieces through Ezra and elsewhere in Scripture, the more you think he must have been given by God spiritual light. He takes a deep interest in all this. Cyrus the Mede. Well, eventually, the house is built and there's great uh, celebration and uh, the Darius even insists that they're given certain of the tax, their own tax money, tribute money, in order to build it, and everything is, is completed. And I can't go into details because time is well past, but there's uh, uh, verse 17 of chapter 6, at the dedication of the house of God, and hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, and all the rest of it. And in the middle of this verse, and I close with this, something very interesting. And for a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he goats. Now that's something your eye would pass over, isn't it? As an incidental. It is in actual fact enormously significant. A sin offering for all Israel. In other words, they're still praying and hoping that others of Israel would join them. Some left behind in Israel herself after the fall of Samaria. Others still in Babylon living now as second-rate citizens, but as free people, nevertheless, didn't want to return. A sin offering is offered for them all. Twelve he-goats, that's one for each tribe. So there's a reunification desire and prayer even in the middle of the re-establishment of the newly built temple. But I've strayed into other things. But, oh, friends, if I can encourage you that uh, we have a great privilege at the tabernacle as long as, as a congregation, we're conscious of what we're doing. We're not drawing attention to ourselves. We're not like, uh, dare I say it, some of the American uh, churches and the big-time Reformed preachers, yes, they preach a lot of truth, but they're building their personalities and they hire PR men and they go onto the internet with endless interviews about their personal lives and they come across as such great fellows and wonderful fellows. We don't want to do anything like that. That's, that's sad that even... Some good teaching should be tarnished with the flesh. The exhibition of fleshly things. We don't want to draw attention to people. We don't want to create personalities. We don't want, we just want to get the word out. But oh, the more God strengthens us to do great things in his name, to get out the word, give encouragement, 
address issues, help the churches. No control, no drawing attention to ourselves, just get on with it. That's our calling. And uh, we value everyone who understands that and the nature of a metropolitan ministry.